And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. Hey, Sarah, how you doing? Making my way through. I think I said that last week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're, you're keeping your head above water. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? I'm doing just fine. Stressful times have happened. I've had, you know, some bad days here and there, but I feel like, I feel like I'm managing. I feel like I'm doing all right. Yeah. Yeah. Folks in the know will be like, hey guys, where's that bonus episode for March? Oh. And we'll be like, it's coming. Yes. <laughs> Life got in the way. And so it is coming to be at the end of the month, which will be tomorrow after this episode is released. Sure. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Ben. Life gets, gets in, in the, the way. way. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what are we watching today? Today, Sarah, we are watching Blood of the Vampire from 1958, directed by Henry Cass. Okay. This film, plain and simple, is a knockoff. Okay. Uh, it is inspired by Hammer Productions' success, reviving gothic horror in color with Curse of Frankenstein and Horror of Dracula. And this movie is just sort of designed to make you think it's the next Hammer film. Okay. And come see it. Um, producers Robert S. Baker and Monty Berman decided to try their hand at a color gothic horror movie. Uh, the two men had started their partnership in 1948, founding a production company specifically to produce B-movies, uh, which they had then been doing ever since for the last 10 years. To cash in on the hammer horror trend, they decided to go right to the source and tapped Jimmy Sangster to write a screenplay mm. for them. Sangster, of course, was the hammer production designer who had found unexpected success as a writer with uh, the script for X the Unknown in 1956. He had followed that up with both Curse of Frankenstein and Horror of Dracula and would soon be working on Revenge of Frankenstein for Hammer as well. So getting him was like getting the guy. Sure. You know? You know what a uh, knockoff Hammer is? What? A rock. <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> now, other than Sangster, it was the first horror film for most of the crew, including director Henry Cass, but... Most of them had worked with Berman and Baker before on these B-movies they'd been churning out. To copy the color cinematography of Jack Asher, Monty Berman hired himself <laughs> as he had been working in the camera department of films since 1930. So he had 18 years of experience as a camera operator before becoming a producer in 1948. And then ever since then, he had been, you know, keeping his skin in the game by hiring himself as a cinematographer on all the movies he produced. Yeah, I mean, make your own work, right? Right. The villain of the film is played by actor Donald Wolfett, who was best known for his touring production of Richard III. Does he play Richard? Yes. Cool. Yeah. Wolfett uh, is a guy who 
it's kind of hard to find nice things to say about. Oh. Um, like, so he was very resentful. He felt he was a Shakespearean actor on the same level as like Sir John Gilgood and Sir Ralph Richardson and Sir Lawrence Olivier. Um, and that he just didn't get to be at their level because he wasn't like from their class. Uh, he hadn't mm. gone to like public schools. He had gone to grammar schools and he resented the fact that he was kind of the guy who toured outside of London with Shakespearean stuff. And they all got to be in London doing Shakespeare. Sure. Um, a critic once said that Laurence Olivier is a tour de force while Donald Wolfett is forced to tour. Um, that's, that's a joke of my level. He did get knighted. So he was Sir Donald Wolfett, but I guess like most people who knew him described him as being like this incredibly bitter, unpleasant person who just had this like burning hatred for John Gilgood, who everyone else describes as like a very sweet old man. Wolfett just like never got over this like inferiority complex that he had about himself. Mm. Um, yeah. So he's playing the villain. <laughs> the film's heroic lead is played by Australian actor Vincent Bell in a rare starring role. Bell was the kind of guy who mostly appeared either in like nameless parts like desk sergeant or first lieutenant or like in minor supporting roles in low budget movies. This is a guy who's a minor character in big budget movies, a supporting character in low budget movies. And here he's the lead. Okay. So that gives us an idea of the budget. Right. Um, the lead female role is filled out by Barbara Shelley, who we recently saw in cat girl, um, a movie that she was definitely the best part of. It was the like cat people rip off only. It was sort of like a combination of cat people and cat in the canary because she thinks she's going to turn into a cat because her family's cursed. And so she needs to like spend the night in the old house to inherit. Okay. I think I remember the ending of it, but I don't remember much else. Yeah. We liked her in it. Okay. Um, she had these like weird dream sequences she would have when she thought she had turned into a cat and killed people. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I remember those. Yeah. Uh, Shelley would go on to become like a kind of perennial horror actress in Britain. So for fans of the genre, she's really like the bright star in the cast here. Also appearing in the film is character actor, Andrew Falds, who, um, had a long acting career um, from the 50s through to the 80s. Um, he's famous for like being a supporting character in Jason and the Argonauts. He was also often in the films of controversial director Ken Russell in the 70s and 80s. But in addition to his long acting career, um, he was also from 1966 to 1997, a member of parliament in the House of Commons for the Labour Party. Oh, So he's kind of doing that and the acting thing at the same time. Interesting. So Blood of the Vampire uh, was arranged to be distributed by Eros Films, uh, which was sort of a hammer competitor of that time. We've mentioned them before on the show. Yeah. Um, so Eros Films was going to distribute it in the UK and Universal International distributing it in the US. Eros had decided to copy Hammer's strategy of like purposely looking for X ratings from the BBFC. So that is what Blood of the Vampire got. Um, by being very gruesome and uh, having, you know, that hammer mix of gore and tits, basically. <laughs> or as we like to call them, gits. <laughs> the film was released on August 26th, 1958 in the United Kingdom. 
And then in the US, it was released on December 17th as the A picture to Universal's B picture, Monster on Campus, directed by Jack Arnold. Oh my God. Are we watching that later? Yes. yes. Amazing. Uh, yeah. You know, it's a bad sign when the studio that used to be like the top horror studio is having the guy who was like their top director making movies that are clearly ripoffs of like what the bottom like poverty row studio is making yes it's very uh interesting (laughs) but back to blood of the vampire um reviews of the movie at the time were mixed they were sort of along the lines of most film critics citing it as an above average example of the horror genre okay but within the context of like the horror genre being bad and not worth consideration yeah so it was a lot of like underhanded compliment kind of stuff yeah but these are like what british critics like um british and u.s okay okay it continues to kind of have a mixed reception to this day because you know it's like a hammer movie but not okay um but it has seen it's a rock movie right yes it has seen numerous home video releases over the years due to the fact that it lapsed into the public domain um however it's worth stating this film was shot on eastman color uh, which we've talked about in previous episodes it's a single strip color process um eastman color prints were not designed to last no one really thought that like people would want to see these movies you know (laughs) 70 years later sure um so eastman color prints were generally only designed to last about five to seven years, um, which was sort of the time that it was expected that a print might be in circulation. And so what happens to them um, is the color degrades Mm. quite severely. Generally, they turn red over time. I mean, that fits for a horror movie. I guess. Um, But it's it's a real big problem because the color would degrade. And so many of the home video releases, like the public domain home video releases are sourced from like degraded prints that don't look good at all. Mm -hmm. Um, For a long time, it was thought that like this movie would never look good ever again because it was thought that the negatives had been destroyed. But recently scream factory has put out a restored Blu-ray from the original negative. So huzzah for that. Uh, It's the best the film has looked in years, but even then it's kind of clear the effect that years of neglect have had on the source material because the density is really low. Um, there's kind of a yellow cast to the footage. Um, contrast isn't as good as it could be, but you know, we got it and it's restored from the negative and you know, huzzah that restored version is available on Tubi. Uh, so that's what I recommend people go out and see. There is also a public domain version on YouTube. Well, folks, uh, Tubi is free, so if if you can watch it on Tubi, definitely recommend that over YouTube, but you can check out our YouTube playlist at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Blood of the Vampire from 1958, directed by Henry Cass. See you on the other side, everybody. Thank you. 
Hello and welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Blood of the Vampire from 1958, directed by Henry Cass. Ben, first thoughts? Meh. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. I I almost want to call it mediocre, but it's not quite mediocre. You know, it's just bland. It just is a movie. Yeah. Um, It's certainly full of a lot of ingredients and elements that we've seen elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wouldn't say that this movie's doing any of them like any better than we've seen them elsewhere. And they're not even doing a unique new mix. No, no, there's nothing really different or new here at all. There's no interesting new twist on anything. It's just, you know, it's it's a peanut butter and jam sandwich, you know? Um, it's not particularly worse than other versions of these kinds of things we've seen, but I don't know. Tell us about the story, and our listeners can probably go, oh, I remember that from this movie, as you go. Sure. So we open, and it is 1874 in Transylvania. There is a bit of text that pops up that's like vampires right you gotta stake them that's the only thing you can do and we see that there is a funeral going on where a man um who appears to be dead is tossed into a grave and then a big stake is driven through him next we see a hunchbacked man uh go and uh kill the grave digger or burier because he's not digging he he's burying anyways he he kills like that dude to get the corpse and then he eventually gets a doctor and uh the doctor basically does a heart transplant for this guy to live again it should be said that this hunchbacked assistant is not just like he doesn't just have a hunchback like this is a full-on like quasimodo situation yes um, he has kind of a fake eye hanging out that it's unclear whether he, in the fiction of the movie, would be able to see through it or not. It's latex, so the actor wouldn't be no. able to see through. And he's got, um, like, a, a, I think one of his arms is a little warped as well, or at least is supposed to be, and he walks with a limp. Like, it's, it's all the Quasimodo stuff that, like, isn't, you know, necessarily part of the hunchback condition. <laughs> For sure. Six years later, and we are set in Karlstadt, where uh, the very French-sounding name, Dr. Jean-Pierre... I'm pretty sure they say it Jean-Pierre through the whole movie, (laughs) but go on. Jean-Valjean-Pierre. He's getting sentenced for uh, life imprisonment for manslaughter and uh, medical malpractice, which we learn is due to work that he was doing with blood transfusions. Now, he is sent to go to one prison, and then he gets redirected to go to the prison for criminal insane. It should be probably worth noting that in 1880, like, blood groups and blood transfusion aren't, like, scientifically a thing yet. So, like, he killed a dude because he did a blood transfusion while not understanding what how blood groups work. Yeah. Basically. Now, at the prison for criminal insane... Mm-hmm. um. He meets inmates that are very, like, poorly treated, um, but kind of what you would expect for a sanitarium in 1880, Mm -hmm. Uh, particularly one named Kurt, who is kind of his uh, cellmate. 
And then he also meets a Dr. Callistratus, who uh, we recognize his face as being the man from the grave. His hunchback assistant is here. His name is Carl, and he is mute. Now, Dr. Calistratus does talk with Pierre, and he's like, yeah, you're a doctor, so as part of your sentencing here, you're going to help me with my experiments. And basically, the first phase of these experiments are going to be identifying blood types and putting them into groups. And for lack of a better name, we shall call them Group A and Group B. <laughs> Meanwhile, Jean-Pierre's uh, fiancé, Madeleine, is <laughs> Madeline Duval. <laughs> Which these... is really funny because last week's movie or whatever had the Dracula Duval. Count sure, Duval. sure. It's just like I don't understand why all these characters in Karlstadt, a city in Germany, have French names. I don't get it. Someone with a better knowledge of Europe, let me know if it makes sense. I think our writer just got things confused, perhaps. Or didn't care. Or didn't care. Um, so Madeline uh, is trying to appeal the sentencing of Jean-Pierre, um, basically by appealing to a, a doctor who was like his like mentor and whatever. And it turns out that uh, there's been a conspiracy going on with um, this member of the prison commissioner's office named Mr. Oron. He basically forged... It doesn't matter. All that matters is that there's a little bit of a conspiracy going on that was all designed just to get Pierre to Dr. Calistratus. Yeah, like he he was found guilty at his trial because Calistratus rigged the trial and all the attempts that Madeline makes to try and get him freed are foiled by like further lies or like rigging of evidence or whatever that Calistratus does or like lies that he's telling where like Madeline gets told that Jean-Pierre is dead. Jean-Pierre gets told that like no one ever looked into appealing your case, et cetera, et cetera. No, that they have tried, but it was denied. Right, which isn't true. Uh, it all went through fine on that end, but they were told he was killed, et cetera. So Madeline, not satisfied, goes undercover as Dr. Calistratus's new housemaid. The previous one got used for experiments. Now, before Pierre gets whisked away, Madeline gave him a necklace, a locket that has her picture in it. And once he came to the prison for criminal insane, that necklace got taken away and ended up in Carl's hands. So he recognizes Madeline and immediately has, you know, the crush. And that crush grows into wanting to protect her, such as from this uh, prison commissioner liaison, um, Mr. Oron, uh, as he tries to rape her out of fucking nowhere. Yeah, it's it's kind of, um, it's not 100% out of nowhere. Like, you can like, tell I that he's got yeah. the hots for her and that, like, he's trying to be, like, hey, I know you're actually Duval and I'm here to cover shit up and like, I'll cover for you if you do a favor for me. But it escalates so quickly. And it's just like, it's also like, I understand we're in a horror movie, but it was just like zero to 60 a little yeah, too quickly. We go from kind of like a, hey, I'll do a favor for you if you do a favor for me to like him assaulting her on the bed, like kind of like that. Yeah, 
And the other thing about the way that everyone interacts with Madeline is immediately, oh, you're so beautiful. Yeah. It reeks of lazy writing. Yeah. I am going to be completely honest here. Yeah. It's her only like established personality trait aside from loves Pierre. Yeah. And, you know, is uh, fairly determined. She's got spunk and that spunk brings her to the prison. Now, um, Dr. Califragilistic Dosis, <laughs> Dr. Calistratus uh, has also commented on, you're so beautiful. So later that night, he calls for her and brings her down into his laboratory basement, where he shows off some of the um, experiments he's done on the inmates. Uh, this man... Um, I'm keeping him alive while he's completely frozen in an ice cube. Uh, this other man um, is functionally dead, but I'm keeping him alive through, like, artificial lungs or whatever. At some point, it's never made clear who, but I suspect it was Carl, someone sneaks the key to the basement laboratory to Pierre, so he is able to go down and attempt to save Madeline. And this is when we get Dr. Calistratus's full deal of like, they called me a vampire because I worked with blood. I'm not actually a Dracula. He's, he's a metaphorical vampire because he was taking people's blood for blood transfusion experiments and then accidentally gave himself blood cancer. No, so what happened was they were going to execute him for these crimes. So he gave himself this um, kind of like infection that would allow him to go into stasis to be able to be resurrected with a heart transplant since he knew that he was going to be staked through the heart. The only problem is it gave him leukemia. They, right. they wouldn't know what leukemia is as in the sense of like cancer of the blood mm -hmm. at this point in time of like 1880 and i don't know if 1958 but that's essentially what he has um yeah they definitely i think knew what leukemia was by 1958 but okay yeah um and so he's been basically trying to figure out combinations of blood groups that will not be destroyed by his vampire blood vampiric leukemia blood mm -hmm. uh so he could cure himself and he has, like, essentially come across the cure, but to test it, he has taken Kurt, the old cellmate, who got, like, maimed and dismembered by dogs early on during a prison escape, infected Kurt, and plans to put Madeline's blood into Kurt. If that cures him, then he, uh, Dr. Calistratus knows that he can be cured. So, through... A very silly bit. Contrived. Contrived climax. Um, Pierre is locked up to the wall. Carl refuses to do anything to Madeline, so he gets shot in the face. And then Calistratus brings out Kurt, and Pierre's like, Kurt, can you hear me? Do something. And Kurt, who has one arm left. Yeah, no other limbs. Just like strong arms our doctor here into maneuvering himself to be near pierre to be knocked out to grab the key and unlock his own manacles <laughs> yes yeah, somehow poor kurt has enough strength in his arm despite his near dead state 
that he will not let go of Calistratus and Calistratus in pulling, trying to pull away, does it in the direction that brings him nearest to Pierre, which is like, I thought you were some kind of evil genius, Calistratus. Uh, Kurt immediately dies. Yeah. So that, that wraps that up. Um, so Pierre gets Madeline off of the table, grabs a knife and, uh, gets Calistratus up and says like, you'll let us out. Otherwise, we're going to gut you like a fish. So they get out of the castle, they get out of the prison, and they make it past, like, the guards, they make it past the dogs, and then, you know, they leave Kelstratus there. Pierre does give a, a lasting threat that, you know, I'm going to go straight to the prison commissioner mm-hmm. team, committee, whatever. I guess that's what a commission is. Commissioner? Whatever. Gonna go to the authorities. I'm gonna go to the authorities on you. Who have so they... proven themselves so trustworthy <laughs> up to now. So they run off and then they hear and we see Carl get up from being shot in the face and makes his way up from the basement laboratory to the main laboratory to the hallways to the main front door. And let's loose the hounds. And then get shot like twice more. By the guards being like, don't let out the hounds. The doctor's out there. And then the doctor gets eaten by dogs. Well, mauled. So that's the end. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure that some clever critic at some point in the last 40, no. 65 years. Some point in the last 65 years. Uh, has made this joke, but I found the blood of the vampire to be a bit anemic. There's lots of blood on screen. Um, they definitely took that from Hammer. Uh, they took like the opening bit of like blood title text bit. They they took the like shot in the face and the eye covered in blood thing from Curse of Frankenstein. So they. They're wearing their inspiration on their sleeve, shall I mean, we say. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they got Jimmy Sangster to write it. Other hammer touches that we see is like when Carl goes to get that doctor at the very start of the movie, he finds him in like essentially a brothel and like all the ladies just have push up bras to the nines. Yeah, they, they, they're in those kind of like Ren Faire wench sort of costumes, basically, where, yeah, there's a lot of cleavage on display. I don't know whether to call this movie cheap or not because you know the phrase is like oh this is just a cheap knockoff Mm. and it's like oh well it's definitely a knockoff but like i feel like they had to have spent money on this with the amount of extras the amount of locations the sets are huge the sets are huge we get some very beautiful matte paintings um the special effects i guess would just be limited to makeup effects and they're okay yeah the thing that really gives away that this has a lower budget honestly is that um carl's bargain bin quasimodo look is bad it's pretty bad um (laughs) speaking of makeup i feel like they were definitely on purpose trying to make calistratus look like bella lugosi 100%. Yeah. Especially because he's not actually a vampire. Yeah. He looks like Martin Landau as Bella Lugosi in Ed Wood. And since you brought up Donald Wolfett and how he was like, I'm a big deal. Mm -hmm. He's fine. Yeah. 
there's nothing special here. Um, there's nothing. He's not bringing anything to the role. He's not chewing scenery, but he's also not like, you know, when you see a, a special performance, like when you see Bella Lugosi as Dracula, when you see Karloff as Frankenstein, you can see a spark of something that they are bringing and it's more than what's on the page. And Wolfit is, I'll say, attempting to bring something here. Like he has some lines and some motions with like his hands and expressions with his face that as if he's trying to give off like I'm a tragic figure because I have this disease yes and it doesn't work at all because it's just like almost going through the motions for him this whole movie is going through the motions Mm -hmm. a bit um how you feel about Wolfit is how I felt about the whole cast. Absolutely. Nobody's like bad enough here that you're like, Ooh, that's, that's bad. But also nobody's really like good either. Everyone's just like showing up to work, you know, which I suppose is what to expect with like a run of the mill schlock movie. Yeah. You know, you mentioned that they have like the gruesome stuff, right? Like, Kurt on the gurney's pretty gruesome. They've got like a heart in a jar, some heads in jars, like a lot of gruesome shit here. When and we there. first get to the prison, there's like a dude who's been uh whipped. Yeah. Just like in the foreground, hanging out. But it's like the filmmakers don't really know how to use the gruesome stuff for its best advantage mm-hmm. because it's basically just set dressing. Yeah. Like nothing really happens too much to anyone in a way that gives like an impact except for maybe what happens to kurt it's it's really anemic it's just like there's all this stuff on screen that should be like horrific and just like somehow manages to not be um i kind of blame uh henry cass his direction is very like meh he's not really doing anything here like everybody's on stage saying their lines they have lit everything extremely brightly because it's eastman color and they think that's what they need to do when in fact with eastman color you don't need to do that um and yeah they're just like shooting things there's nothing in the direction that's really pumping anything up and even to the point of like at one point pierre gets into a scuffle with uh our main bad guard Mm -hmm. and the fight choreography they're trying to spice it up by having them like come at the camera and we're cutting back and forth but it gets confusing who is supposed to be on the left and who's supposed to be on the right yeah there's actually a few different uh screen direction mistakes throughout the movie yeah um like right in the beginning um carl takes pierre to the uh, what is it? The prison for criminal insane? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I just criminally insane, my guys. Yeah. Come on. Um, so he takes him to this prison and he leaves Karlstadt moving across screen left to right. But then in all the shots of him going through the countryside, coming to the prison, he's going right to left. Mm-hmm. And like, it doesn't matter. Um, he could have turned around. It it That doesn't matter audience for a movie you should keep that direction consistent and there's just like a few things like that throughout where it's like oh you you weren't paying attention were you henry you didn't care yeah these are editing things that like 
an audience member who has not been taught to see these things is not supposed to see them because it's supposed to help the continuity of the movie. Yes. And uh, it is kind of a sign of like someone just like not paying attention, like someone in like the director's chair, the editor's chair, whoever, uh, for not doing that because it's such a like standard practice. Yeah, absolutely. The The whole point of standard continuity editing is to make editing invisible. Nowadays, it's a lot more common to um, break screen direction, uh, break the 180 degree rule, things like this. But when those things started being done in modern films, it was being done on purpose to like make you feel unease, unease because you... As a person who's been watching movies your whole life, you don't know these rules intellectually, but you know them in your gut because every movie you've ever seen follows them without you knowing them. And when a movie doesn't follow them, you can feel that something's wrong, even though you don't know what it is. And this style of editing was like nowadays we have people who break these rules and to the point where. Um, some of my film school instructors were like young directors these days don't even know these rules. Like if you're going to break them, you have to learn what they are and what they mean first. Sure. In 1958, the idea of breaking these rules is was unheard of. Yeah. Nobody breaks these rules. Yeah. Um, the only way you break these rules is if you are incompetent. So when you see this in a movie, like, as you said, it speaks to someone just like not caring. Yeah. At some point. For a good example of how breaking these rules can affect, like, your feeling in the movie, um, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining is a great example. Mm. Anyways, so it just, that's what I mean with, like, it's not cheap, but it's kind of cheap, right? Yeah, like, it's, exactly. It doesn't, they knew that they didn't want the movie to look cheap. They wanted it to look like an A picture. So they've got the sets and the costumes and the extras, but... They aren't paying attention to the details and that's where the devil lies. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I got to talk about this script. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh no. A, a blood transfusion vampire. Never heard that before. When I was getting the list of the cast members when writing out the plot synopsis here, I accidentally searched for blood of Dracula Mm -hmm. And I was like, this isn't the movie we watch. What movie did we watch? Because it was like, it has the transfusions. Yeah. It has the like people stuck in a house against their will sort of. Like, yeah. So like, ugh. okay, here are things in this movie that we've seen in other places. Yes. And they range from broad tropes to like oddly specific. So overall, my sense of this script, and I think what this movie's biggest fault is, is that it's all very predictable um like we, we've said it's like going through the motions we've said it's very you know cookie cutter we've said that there isn't really any interesting new twists on anything right yeah and so it really feels like sangster is just like whole cloth sort of like picking up pieces from other movies and then just like slotting them down into this movie without really doing anything to them so we've seen blood transfusion vampires before with like this sort of sense of like isn't it clever? Like he is a vampire because he needs blood to live, but not like in a supernatural way in like a science way. Is it, maybe that's what people thought when they thought people were vampires, blah, blah, blah. So we've seen that before. The idea of like our hero gets sent to like uh, a mental asylum and has to kind of like make his way out of it from the inside while pretending to help the doctor is something we've seen before. 
um, you know, the mental asylum where the patients are being used for experiments we've seen before, um, the hunchbacked assistant, obviously we've seen before, but I think the thing to point out about this guy is not only is he a hunchbacked assistant, but he has all of the exact same ailments as Quasimodo, which as I mentioned, are not things that just come along with being a hunchback. He's also mute, which slows down the movie and doesn't make sense often. And he kind of has this like very lazy, like he half signs some words in like made up sign language and then like mouths other words to communicate. And people like look at him just kind of like doing this random stuff. And they're they, it's like talking to Chewbacca in star Wars where people are like, ah, yes, Carl, of course, of course, an excellent point that you make the doctors of the well. Yeah. And it's like, why did you have him be mute? Yeah. And it's like, Oh, because, um, Quasimodo is deaf in the novel. The, specific thing of he falls in love with the pretty girl who the bad guy threatens at the end of the movie and therefore the hunchbacked assistant turns against his master is something we've seen so many times that like it is so predictable yeah like the second it was like oh carl has the locket cool i know what the ending of this movie is now yeah um so we've (laughs) seen that we've seen you know the girl goes undercover and ends up becoming a victim all of these things all of them so many um, in terms of very specific things that I noticed that were weird. So like they make Calistratus look like Bella Lugosi, like Donald Wolfett does not look like Bella Lugosi. This guy does, right? Although he does have the same skunk stripe in his hair as uh, Humphrey Bogart as Dr. X in Return of Dr. X, which also I, <laughs> I think, don't think that was in- no. intentional, but he looks like past his prime Bella Lugosi. He's got an outfit in the end of the movie with these like kind of leather gloves and like a leather apron over like a white shirt. And with his like bushy eyebrows, I was like, oh, he's not just Bella Lugosi. He's Bella Lugosi in Murders in the Rue Morgue. And that made something else click to me, which was the dude who is like flogged, who we see just hanging out when we first get to the place. He's on an X shaped like crucifix which is what we saw the lady on in murders in the room morgue and like that was a movie about weird blood experiments and shit too right so it's like very specific things that we're stealing as well as very general things we're putting them all together and the reason why this movie is just kind of fine is because it's not like the things we're putting together don't work with each other they do everything fits just fine here but there's also nothing like new being created by putting them together. Right. And they're not being put together in such a way that is also like exciting when it's like, Oh, this guy gets it. Right. Like, yeah, that's how you do it. Yeah. 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 Kind of lazy. Yeah. It's a peanut butter and jam sandwich. Like peanut butter and jam don't come together naturally. Someone had to come up with the idea to put them together and, The first time that happened, it was probably pretty exciting, but, you know. (laughs) person puts the two slices together and they take a bite and they're like, it's like that moment in Ratatouille where like the like fireworks go off when he tastes things like, oh, PB and J? Right. Damn. Yeah. But like, you know, nowadays, if you want to excite me with like a peanut butter and jam sandwich, it better be like this jam was made from avocados and this peanut butter came from 
like Sorry. like soy or something and like the, the bread was words. made out of like soylent i don't know like soylent made out of people <laughs> yeah you gotta like do something new with it is what i'm trying to say right yeah. um which is not what we see happening here so there's no like incompetence in the script but it's just lazy because yeah. everyone's just here to do the part in the plot that you know that they are here to do right it's like what you were saying about madeline yeah she's got like sort of the bare minimum traits she needs to be this character in this movie yeah this script uses these old plot elements that we've seen in dozens of movies before in exactly the same way we've seen them used anywhere else and that's so weird to me because the whole thing with curse of frankenstein and horror of dracula is that there's such like new subverting expectation takes on those two stories like curse of frankenstein's like hey what if the doctor was an asshole though and um <laughs> horror sorry <laughs> that was just the way you encapsulated victor frankenstein <laughs> so good and then like horror of dracula is like hey what if jonathan harker was actually like van helsing's vampire slaying apprentice so i'm like what the fuck happened here that sangster just like doesn't do that at all and it's almost like these guys came to him and they were like, hey, you've written these big movies for Hammer. We want you to come write something for us so that we can get in on that pound pound bill, yo. <laughs> and he was like, cool, I'm just going to intentionally write the most boring, like no effort at all script and get paid from you guys. But I'm not fucking giving my best to you guys when I know you're just trying to rip off my like better employers. Possibly. Two alternative views. Mm -hmm. One, um, yes, the movie credit should go to the writer along with like everyone else, but it is a collaborative thing. And so, you know, we don't know what the review process looked like between Sangster and the Hammer producers and mm -hmm. them potentially pushing him to go further and like really challenge him in those ways creatively and to push him forward yeah there's a difference between terence fisher and henry cass for instance yeah another alternative thing is uh the producers of blood of the vampire coming to sangster and being like yeah we'll give you like money for one of your scripts and sangster's like oh shit i well i don't want to work on that when i have my other work so let me just cobble together like stuff that got thrown to the cutting room floor <laughs> and just pass that off yeah i'm not sure if it's that because the movie doesn't feel like a patchwork everything does fit together it's just boring like to me it feels like when as a kid you're like oh if i do a bad job mowing the lawn maybe they'll never ask me again like <laughs> <laughs> please tell me you never did that <laughs> So ranking. You and I had very different childhoods. <laughs> uh, I will say Pierre has a choice line when he's talking to Kurt and Kurt's like, you're working for the doctor. Like you've gone to like the dark side. And Pierre says, this is 1880, not the dark ages. We don't experiment on patients. And it's like, my guy, we experiment on patients well into the 1950s. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like people are experimenting on patients in 1958. Are you kidding? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Pierre's perhaps <laughs> greatest flaw through this entire movie as a character is that he is 
shockingly naive for a dude who's doing illegal uh, blood experiments. Like, it's like, oh, well, I would have thought that, like, the medical commission would have shown that this guy would have died whether he got the transfusion or not, and therefore I'm not liable. But, okay, fine. They threw me to the wolves. Well, talk to my old Swedish professor. Oh, he says he doesn't know me? Uh, That can't be right. I'll appeal. Oh, I've been sentenced to a prison. Um, It takes him forever to learn that, like, you shouldn't, like, backtalk to guards or act like you still have like run of the roost you know once he's in irons well they do establish that he's a lord i don't know if they established that or if that was just like a a weird like kind of oh hoity-toity mister kind of like insult that the um other prisoners were giving him okay well yeah regardless he has that attitude for sure and then it's like oh i'm sure that my conviction will be overturned once new evidence is found. And honestly, like, yeah, it's eventually revealed that his mentor's like letter saying he didn't know him was faked. But also if I was there in the moment, it would be like, yeah, you're on trial for murder. Of course your mentor is going to be like, Oh yeah, I've never heard of that guy. (laughs) (laughs) And then it's like, we find out that the commission is corrupt. We find out like everyone at every stage is corrupt. And even still, you know, the doctor turns out to be evil and weird and experimenting on things, which like, come on, Pierre, you should have been able to guess that sooner than you did. And then like, even to the end of the movie, he's like, doctor, I'm going to write up a report, a complaint to the commission. We're going to get this prison shut down. I'm going to speak to the manager. Exactly. (laughs) My dude, (laughs) what has shown you up to this point that the manager can be trusted? Uh, Let's move on to ranking. Yeah. Okay. So Sarah, it took me a while um, but I eventually just sort of picked a spot. Oh. Um, do you have a range or? I have a very small range and it didn't take me any time at all. Interesting. <laughs> okay. Do you want to go first? Yeah. So I first started by looking at the lowest ranked movie that Singster has also done. And I believe that is The Curse of Frankenstein, uh, which is currently ranked at number 38. And... um. Blood of the Vampire is much worse. Mm-hmm. Or rather, I should say, The Curse of Frankenstein is much better. Mm-hmm. So then I was like, well, I kept getting confused with Blood of Dracula. Where is that ranked? That, my friend, is ranked at number 68. And I was like, I think Blood of the Vampire is better than Blood of Dracula. Oh. Because it's at least like Blood of a metaphorical vampire not i am literally turning into dracula right but i am a teen girl right i am a dracula um also the scene of kurt getting mauled by those dogs was pretty upsetting like there's nothing in blood of dracula that is that upsetting so i made 68 my floor looking up the abominable snowman is at number 64 Blood of the Vampire is not going above Abominable Snowman. So my range is 64 to 68. Okay. I went probably way too low then. Um, my strategy here was I thought to myself, nothing about Blood of the Vampire is interesting in the slightest, but it is not technically bad. Okay. Where do we get in the list where the movies stop having things 
to them that are like, well, I could recommend the movie for this reason and start instead being like, no, you need to stay away from that movie for this reason. You know, where's that quality midpoint? And I ended at 170 uh, below the unknown, but above the Aztec mummy. So that's probably way too low. I do feel that that's way too low. So um, looking at what's in your range. So Abominable Snowman was the Hammer Yeti movie with yeah. Peter Cushing. At 65 is Return of Dracula, which was the Dracula in the Suburbs movie. Yeah, White Picket Fence. Right. Then we have the Ghost of Kasane Swamp, which is sort of like a Yatsia Kaiden... Um, speed run. Speed run. Yeah, sure. Uh, a dress rehearsal for that director doing it later, which we haven't gotten to yet. Then we've got I Was a Teenage Frankenstein, which is, hey, what if Mary Shelley, but it's the 50s and the monster's a teen. Uh, and then we got Blood of Dracula, which is I Was a Teenage Werewolf, but at a girl's school and Dracula. What I'm going to propose is to slot Blood of the Vampire above Blood of Dracula, but below Teen Frankenstein. And the reason I'm thinking that is the makeup effects on Teen Frank Mm -hmm. were much better than whatever was going on Carl. I swear there are shots where you can like see the line between the The, eye prosthetic and his face. Yeah, it's not not super well done. But also there were very chilling moments in Teen Frankenstein where that Dr. Frankenstein um, like takes oh his like girlfriend. Yeah, his like fiance. Yeah, and like kills her and you hear her blood curdling scream um in the dark. Like Whit Bissell was bringing something to the role of evil mad scientist in a way that Donald Wolfett is not. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I can totally buy that. Let's do that. So entering the list at the new number 68 then is Blood of the Vampire from 1958 directed by Henry Cass. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.com. There you can find links to the many episodes that we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line there. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show using our RSS feed, help the show out by leaving a rating or a review, share the show online or uh, just, you know, around the water cooler if they still have those in offices. Either way, word of mouth is a great way to help the show grow its audience. If you have the means, we would really appreciate it if you checked out patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 and $10 levels get access to regular bonus content, and all of our patrons get to vote every month on what our horror-adjacent bonus episode will be. Tomorrow's horror-adjacent bonus episode will be on Arsenic and Old Lace. What do Ben and Sarah think of this classic screwball comedy? Find out tomorrow. Patreon.com slash Podcast. So what are we watching next week, Ben? Well, I kind of teased it a little bit in the context oh. setting. But it came out the day after this movie, and it was Hammer's sequel to Curse of Frankenstein, also written by Jimmy Sangster. It's The Revenge of Frankenstein. Didn't he die? That was what Sangster said to Hammer when they asked him to write it. <laughs> You'll find out the answer 
to that question next week, Creatures of the Night. I just keep thinking of that. Did you die, though? (laughs) Bye. Bye.